Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, hub of the universe. This is episode 139, Founding the BSO. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're talking about the founding of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and Symphony Hall. In addition to serving as the hub of the universe, Boston is also a hub of world-class arts institutions. We'll discuss the characters that brought the BSO and Symphony Hall to life, as well as the remarkable features of the concert hall. But before we talk about acoustics and conductors, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Michael Patrick McDonald's memoir, Easter Rising. On his website, McDonald describes the book as follows. In Easter Rising, Michael Patrick McDonald tells the story of how he escaped the old colony housing project and learned to live again. Desperate to avoid the normal life of crime and drugs that surrounds him, Michael crosses the bridge into the bigger world and reinvents himself in the burgeoning punk rock movement downtown. At 19, McDonald escapes further, to Paris and then London. Out of money, he contacts his Irish immigrant grandfather, who offers a loan after securing a promise that Michael will visit Ireland. It's this reluctant journey home that reconciles McDonald with his neighborhood, his family, and his heritage, and the real way forward. A roots journey laced with both rebellion and profound redemption. McDonald is better known for his first book, a previous Boston Book Club pick, called All Souls, which is now part of the BPS reading curriculum. The tale is a personal narrative of the profound impact of poverty on a community with enough appearances from Whitey Bulger to appeal to a broader, Boston-curious audience. However, we both prefer Easter Rising. A review on Goodreads describes the connection between the two memoirs. Michael Patrick McDonald's All Souls, a family story from Southie, told the story of the loss of four of his siblings to the violence, poverty, and gangsterism of Boston's Irish-American ghetto. The question, how did you get out, has haunted McDonald ever since. In response, he's written this new book, a searingly honest story of reinvention that begins with young McDonald's breakaway from the soul-crushing walls of Southie's Old Colony Housing Project and ends with two healing journeys to Ireland that are unlike anything in Irish-American literature. The story begins with McDonald's first urgent forays outside Southie, into Boston, and eventually to New York's East Village, where he becomes part of the club scene swirling around Johnny Rotten, Mission of Burma, The Clash, and other groups. McDonald's one-of-a-kind 1980s social history gives us a powerful glimpse of what punk music is for him, a life-saving form of subversion and self-education. But family tragedies draw him home again, where trauma and guilt lead to an emotional collapse. In a harrowing yet hilarious scene of self-discovery, McDonald meets his father for the first time, much too late. After this spectacularly failed attempt to connect, McDonald travels to Ireland. First, as an alienated young man who's learned to hate shamrocks with a passion, and then on a second trip with his extraordinary ma. We'll include a link to purchase Easter Rising in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a Massachusetts Historical Society brown bag lunch event. Susie King-Taylor, A Legacy of Black Womanhood and Historic Preservation, on Wednesday, June 26th at noon. Taylor was the first Black Army nurse, and she tended to an all-Black Union Army troop named the 1st South Carolina Volunteers, later redesignated the 33rd United States Colored Infantry Regiment 
where her husband served for four years during the Civil War. Despite her service, like many Black nurses, she was never paid for her work. As the author of Reminiscences of My Life in Camp with the 33rd United States Colored Troops Late First South Carolina Volunteers, she was also the only Black woman to publish a memoir of her wartime experiences and the first Black person to teach openly in a school for formerly enslaved people in Georgia. The talk, led by Rebecca Byrd of UNC Charlotte, is described as follows. Susie King-Taylor was not Sojourner Truth or Harriet Tubman. Although she does not have the notoriety of these two women, her story is no less important. As the first African-American army nurse who traveled with the first South Carolina volunteers during the Civil War, an educator for freed people, and founder of the Women's Relief Corps, Ms. Taylor is truly a remarkable woman. Although she remains in an unmarked grave, a younger historian has been tasked to preserve her legacy in the digital age. We'll include details in this week's show notes. We want to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Podcasts are a great medium because they've always been free to listen to. Unfortunately, they're not free to create. Along with the time we spend every week researching and writing a new episode, we spend money on our podcast feed host, our web host, and some online audio processing tools. Supporting us on Patreon for as little as $2 per month helps us cover the cost of creating Hub History. Plus, there are special rewards at the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels, or, as we call them, the Amelia Earhart, Lewis Hayden, and Abigail Adams levels, named after some of our favorite Bostonians. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. The story of the BSO begins with Henry Lee Higginson. Born in New York City in 1834, Henry and his family moved to Boston when he was four years old. His father jointly founded a brokerage as a junior partner. His mother died of tuberculosis when Henry was 15. He graduated from Boston Latin in 1851 after withdrawing twice due to eye fatigue problems. He began studies at Harvard College, but withdrew from that after four months when he again experienced eye fatigue. In March of 1855, Henry's father secured a position for him in the office of Samuel and Edward Austin, India Merchants, a small shipping counting house on India Wharf, where he worked as the sole company clerk and bookkeeper. Higginson joined the Union Army on May 11, 1861 as a second lieutenant of Company D in Colonel George H. Gordon's 2nd Massachusetts Regiment. Higginson was commissioned a major in the cavalry in March of 1862, and on June 17, 1863, the 1st Massachusetts Cavalry engaged the soldiers of General Jeb Stuart and General Fitzhugh Lee's cavalry at the Battle of Aldi. During the battle, Higginson crossed sabers with one of the enemy and was knocked out of his saddle with three saber cuts and two pistol wounds. As his wounds slowly healed in Boston, he married Ida Agassi daughter of Harvard professor Louis Agassiz on December 5, 1863. Though he retired from the military with the title of colonel, he was commonly addressed as major for the rest of his life to avoid confusion with an older cousin known as Colonel Higginson. After the war, he worked as an agent for the Buckeye Oil Company in Ohio from January to July of 1865, purchasing equipment and contracting laborers to work in the oil fields. In October 1865, he and friends paid $30,000 for 5,000 acres of cotton farming land in Georgia. This failed experiment left him more than $10,000 in debt. 
Reluctantly, out of desperation, he started on January 1st, 1868 as a clerk and later became a junior partner in his father's business, Lee Higginson and Company, which at the time was a modest brokerage. His father had been a junior partner until 1858 and worked until his death in 1889 at age 85. This brokerage and banking company eventually became very profitable, and Henry Lee Higginson became a senior partner. With financial success came a philanthropic endeavor that Higginson later described in a letter to Sir George Grove, describing the founding of the BSO for the 1883 printing of Grove's Dictionary of Music and Musicians. In February 1881, I began to put in shape a scheme conceived 25 years before that date, namely, to give orchestral concerts of the best attainable character and quality at a price which should admit anyone and everyone likely to care for such things. My hope was to draw in by degrees a larger and less educated class of society. I had meant to engage an orchestra and a conductor to be at my beck and call, because this only could I ask and get practice sufficient in amount and quality to reach the playing of the great German orchestras. On March 30, 1881, Higginson published in Boston newspapers his plan for a Boston Symphony Orchestra that would perform as a full and permanent orchestra, offering the best music at low prices, such as may be found in all the large European cities. He advised his first music director, George Henschel, to hire only local musicians for the first year so as to avoid creating bad blood in local musical circles. For the first season series of 20 concerts, prices were set at $10 or $5 for the whole series. Single ticket prices were set at 75 and 25 cents. For the weekly afternoon public rehearsal, seats were unreserved and all priced at 25 cents. The first conductor, George Henschel, was a noted baritone as well as a conductor and a close friend of Johannes Brahms. For the orchestra, Henschel devised innovative orchestral seating charts and sent them to Brahms, who replied approvingly and commented on the issues raised by horn and viola sections. The concert venue was the Boston Music Hall on Winter Street. The hall was built in 1852 thanks to a donation of $100,000 made by the Harvard Musical Association for its construction. The Boston Music Hall organ, installed in 1862, was the first concert pipe organ installed in the United States. It was commissioned in 1857 and built in Germany by E.F. Volker and Company of Ludwigsburg. It was the largest in the U.S. at the time, containing 5,474 pipes and 84 registers. That's a lot. Initially put into storage, the organ was rebuilt and installed by the Methuen Organ Company in the Serlo Organ Hall in Methuen, Mass., which was built to house the organ. The original organ was later rebuilt again and augmented by the Aeolian Skinner Organ Company. Today, the Serlo Hall is known as the Methuen Memorial Music Hall, and concerts are regularly presented on the organ, still considered one of the leading instruments in the U.S., Along with serving as the first home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Music Hall was also the birthplace of the New England Conservatory of Music. In addition to concerts, the hall presented important speakers of the time. On December 31, 1862, the eve of the day the Emancipation Proclamation took effect, Northern abolitionists gathered at the Music Hall to celebrate as the clock struck midnight. 
Frederick Douglass, Wendell Phillips, Harriet Beecher Stowe, William Lloyd Garrison, and Harriet Tubman attended. When the Boston Symphony moved to Symphony Hall in 1900, the Boston Music Hall was converted for use as a vaudeville theater and operated under a number of different names, including the Music Hall and the Empire Theater. In 1906, it was renamed the Orpheum Theater. In 1915, the theater was acquired by Lowe's Theaters, and they reopened it in 1916 with a completely new interior design. The Orpheum was at first a combination vaudeville and movie theater, and later a straight, first-run movie house. In 1971, the Orpheum closed as a movie theater and reopened as the Aquarius, a concert hall. The theaters operated as the Orpheum under its current leadership since 2009. In addition to its home base at the Boston Music Hall, the orchestra would travel locally, offering concerts in such cities as Providence, Portland, and Worcester, as well as several in Cambridge at Harvard University's Sanders Theater. Tours to more distant cities followed, starting with Philadelphia and then New York. Casual summer concerts began in 1885. For many years, the organization accepted support from no one other than Higginson, who made up the annual deficit himself. From the very beginning, through at least the first 30 years of the BSO, through Julius Epstein, a Jewish friend in Vienna, Higginson had access to a continuous stream of the best conductors in the world, all European and German-speaking. In 1906, he sent instructions to those hiring on his behalf that the person they choose should understand that Higginson cared neither for the modern music nor the extreme modern style of conducting. He elaborated his tastes in a letter. If you see Walter or Mengelberg, you will have to say to them that I do know something about music, and that I have very distinct ideas as to how music should be played, that I shall not meddle with modern music, but that I shall certainly ask them to play the classics as they were played. I was brought up in the Vienna school, as you know, and there were plenty of men living then who had heard Beethoven conduct, as well as Mendelssohn and knew how he wished his music given. I have known Brahms myself and heard his music. You know well enough what I wish, and I shall not interfere unduly with any of these men, but I don't want crazy work, such as sometimes even Nikish gave us and Power gave us too often, and perhaps you had better tell them that I hate noise. As sole administrator of the BSO during its early years, Higginson ensured the success of his new organization by tightly controlling the professional musicians. In 1882, he forged a new contract requiring his musicians to make themselves available from Wednesday to Saturday during the season and stipulated that they could play under no other conductor except with the Handel and Haydn Society, a collegial gesture to a much older organization. After the fourth season, he authorized the BSO's conductor, Wilhelm Garica, to recruit 20 musicians while summering in Europe. Over time, he dropped musicians with ties to Boston and imported men from Europe that he believed would be loyal to him. A big change came when ground was broken and construction began on Symphony Hall on June 12, 1899, after the Boston Music Hall was threatened by road building and subway construction. The National Historic Landmark nomination for Symphony Hall describes Higginson's approach to the project. Higginson formed a committee of advisors who would help determine the elements that would characterize the new music hall, as it was going to be called, in the confident assurance that the old one would have seen its last days before construction was completed. 
Visual attractiveness was a consideration, but far more so was practicality and, above all, acoustics. It was this last feature that made Symphony Hall virtually unique for its time and for years after. The world had already seen the creation of a number of concert halls with excellent acoustics, but that happy situation was invariably the result of accident, not design. For Symphony Hall, Higginson hired a scientist in the new emerging field of acoustics to work with the architects in the hope of ensuring a favorable result. Boston Symphony Hall is the first concert hall designed to be acoustically balanced specifically for music. The first hurdle to clear was laying a foundation in the fill of the back bay. The landmark nomination explains, Symphony Hall is a steel-framed building resting on wooden pilings sunk deep in the fill, which are capped by granite pads on which stand brick support piers. Engineering work for this project was carried out by the Norcross brothers, who are probably best known as the builders and engineers who carried out the complex structural work for H.H. Richardson's Trinity Church, located in Copley Square. The central tower of this structure alone rests on some 2,000 wood piles. Symphony Hall is also an example of an early steel frame building in Boston. The 1894 Carter Winthrop building by Clarence Blackall was the first, and less than a dozen others have been built by 1900. The building was completed after 17 months and inaugurated on October 15, 1900. Architects McKim Meaden White engaged Wallace Clement Sabine, a young assistant professor of physics at Harvard University, as their acoustical consultant, and Symphony Hall became one of the first auditoria designed in accordance with scientifically derived acoustical principles. Admired for its lively acoustics from the time of its opening, the hall is often cited as one of the best-sounding classical concert venues in the world. The landmark nomination form cites a Boston Journal article outlining how Sabine had perfected his acoustical experiments. Mr. Wallace C. Sabine, assistant professor of physics at Harvard, seems to have reduced acoustic construction to a formula. For from the moment he had the plans of his proportions and materials before the architects of the hall, he maintained that there was little question about the desired outcome, as there was in the minds of the architects about the appearance of the structure. Mr. Sabine began by establishing the duration of audibility of what he calls residual sound, but what is popularly known as reverberation, by means of an organ pipe, the action of which he could control electrically, and a chronograph. Then, he determined the relative absorbing power of various substances—cushions, draperies, plaster on lath, plaster on tiles, and brick, wood, open windows, men, and women. He began with all the cushions of the Sanders Theater of Cambridge, and noted scientifically all the steps by which he reduced a reverberation, which originally endured 5.62 seconds, to one of only 1.14 seconds durability. When he came down to the laws for Symphony Hall, he took famous music rooms for comparison, and calculated that the duration of residual sound, in seconds, was 2.3 in the Leipzig Gewandhaus, 2.44 in the old Boston Music Hall, and would be 2.31 in the new Symphony Hall. The hall is modeled on the second Gewandhaus concert hall in Leipzig, which was later destroyed in World War II. The hall is long, narrow, and high, in a rectangular shape like Vienna's Musikverein. Stage walls slope inward to help focus the sound. With the exception of its wooden floors, 
The hall is built of brick, steel, and plaster, with modest decoration. Side balconies are very shallow to avoid trapping or muffling sound, and the coffered ceiling and statue-filled niches along three sides help provide excellent acoustics to every seat. In 2006, due to years of wear and tear, the original concert stage floor was replaced at a cost of $250,000. In order to avoid any change to the sound of the hall, the new floor was built using the same methods and materials as the original. These included tongue-and-groove three-quarter-inch hard maple boards, a compressed wood underlayment, and hardened steel-cut nails, hammered in by hand. The vertical-grained fir subfloor from 1899 was in excellent shape and was left in place. The nails used in the new floor were hand-cut using the same size and construction as the originals, and the back-channeling on the original maple-top boards was replicated as well. Beethoven's name is inscribed over the stage, the only musician's name that appears in the hall, since the original directors could agree on no other name but his. The hall's leather seats are the original ones installed in 1900. The hall seats 2,625 people during symphony season and 2,371 during the pop season, including 800 seats at tables on the main floor. Despite its world-class home, the BSO continued to struggle financially. In February 1918, with his finances so depleted by World War I that he could no longer finance the orchestra's deficits alone, and anticipating the departure of conductor Karl Muck after his arrest for refusing to open with the Star-Spangled Banner, Higginson opted to hand the management of the orchestra over to a new institutional structure the announcement of a board of trustees to manage an incorporated Boston Symphony Orchestra came on April 27, 1918. Another milestone was the founding of the Boston Pops as an ensemble that presented lighter, popular music to the public with the first concert performed in 1885. Called the Promenade Concerts until 1900, these performances combined light classical music, tunes from the current hits of musical theater, and an occasional novelty number allowing for some changes of taste over the course of more than a century, the early programs were remarkably similar to Boston Pops concerts of today. The Pops consists primarily of musicians from the BSO, although generally not all the first chair players. The orchestra performs a spring season of popular music and a holiday program in December while the BSO is on break. The Boston Pops Orchestra had 17 conductors before 1930 when Arthur Fiedler began a 50-year tenure as the Pops conductor. Under Fiedler's direction, the orchestra's popularity spread far beyond the city of Boston through recordings, radio, and television. Unhappy with the reputation of classical music as being solely for affluent concertgoers, Fiedler made efforts to bring classical music to a wider audience. He instituted a series of free concerts at the Hatch Shell on the Esplanade and insisted that the Pops Orchestra play popular music as well as well-known classical pieces, opening up a new niche of popular symphonic music. Of the many musical pieces created for the orchestra, the Pops' most identifiable works were the colorful novelty numbers composed by Fiedler's close friend Leroy Anderson, including Sleigh Ride, The Typewriter, The Syncopated Clock, and several others. Fiedler also initiated what's become a Boston tradition, the annual Holiday Pops concerts the Boston Pops give every December. 
Fiedler's also credited with having begun the annual tradition of the 4th of July Pops concert and fireworks display on the Esplanade, one of the best-attended Independence Day celebrations in the country, with estimated crowds of up to a half a million people. This year's Boston Pops Fireworks Spectacular, under the direction of Keith Lockhart, features headliner Queen Latifah, Grammy, Emmy, and Golden Globe Award winner and Academy Award nominee. Her performance will span her diverse catalog, including jazz, rap, R&B, and Broadway hits. In addition, songwriter, storyteller, and singer Arlo Guthrie will perform a musical tribute to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. You can watch the Boston Pops Fireworks Spectacular on Bloomberg TV and WHDH-TV on July 4th from 8 to 11 p.m., and it'll be available for streaming on Bloomberg.com. To learn more about the BSO, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 139. We'll have images of the original Boston Music Hall, now known as the Orpheum, and information on the Methuen Memorial Music Hall. We'll also link to the 1998 National Historic Landmark nomination and its exhibits, which has great information, and we'll share a program from opening night at the Boston Music Hall. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Easter Rising, this week's Boston Book Club pick. For the first time in a while, we have listener feedback to share this week. Bob Sawyer got excited when he saw we had released an episode about the MIGS monorail and tweeted, Yay, you guys did this one. I can't wait to listen. Then a couple of days later, he followed up to say, This was really a fun episode to listen to. Thanks, Bob. Christopher Klein, who wrote one of our recent Boston Book Club selections, took to Twitter to say, Thanks to Hub History for selecting Discovering the Boston Harbor Islands as part of their Boston Book Club, and give this episode on the harbor's connection to the Underground Railroad a listen. Shh. I hear an update to Discovering the Boston Harbor Islands is in the works. Thanks, Christopher. We'll look forward to a new edition. Our fellow podcasters over at In Greater Boston also heard that they were our Boston Book Club pick and tweeted, Huge thanks to Hub History for the wonderful, heartfelt Greater Boston shout-out at the top of their recent episode about the monorail, episode 133. Jake, we love and appreciate your work so much, and to hear your lovely words about our show brings us so much joy. Thank you. Anthony Amore emailed us and said, Really enjoyed your podcast about the 73 fog heist. Nicely done. Just FYI, one of the reasons they went to Montreal is because Al Munday fled there after pulling off the 1972 Worcester Art Museum heist. They all knew Al. Like all other art thieves, save Miles Connor, these guys are thieves through and through. Kirchick was a very well-known fence for anything from art to automobiles. You guys did an excellent job getting all the details in there. That makes us sit up and pay attention because Mr. Amore is an international expert on art theft. If you've listened to the WBUR Boston Globe podcast about the 1990 Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, you'll recognize him as the current director of security at the museum. He's also the author of best-selling books on art theft and forgery, so we're glad that an expert approved of how we handled the story. We are eager to receive your listener feedback, whether you loved the episode or just liked it a lot. We're happy to hear your episode suggestions, factual corrections, and alternate sources that we may have missed. If you want to leave us some feedback on this show or any other, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. 
We also have a voicemail line at 617-383-9255 where you can call and leave a voicemail. We'd love to get some audio feedback that we can share in a future episode. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. And if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating and reviewing the show. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help other listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about a 1967 protest led by women and the harsh police response that led to three days of rioting in Roxbury.